The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. America Now with Buck Sexton. On the left, Democrats, liberals, tearing down America is like their national pastime. They love that. Every night, Buck is in the Freedom Hut. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Breaking down the important issues. Class anxiety, though, is the defining characteristic of the American experience. America Now with Buck Sexton. Some Democrats I know are very patriotic. Look, it's a radio show. I'm having a little fun, everybody. Let's not get too crazy. 7 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're new, thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me a chance. And uh, hopefully you'll find a voice here of patriotism of liberty, of freedom, of rational, of rationality, of pragmatism. An American Muslim who doesn't make excuses, who doesn't hold punches, who realizes that the global security crisis, the global strategic paralysis is due to the lack of Muslim voices, the lack of Muslim clarity when it comes to fighting the ideologies that threaten us, when it comes to taking ownership of the ideas that need reform to bring the Muslim consciousness, the Muslim ideology into the 21st century. We have so much to talk about, and week to week, I hope you hear the things here that you just don't hear anywhere else. Not only the same old complaints about politics and partisanship, but hopefully here you get some clarity and and more in-depth analysis of those issues that we need to confront. This week, there's a lot to talk about from the tragedy in Houston and Texas to what's happening in Qatar with their affinity now, or maybe it's old, with Iran, to the concern I have for more exits from the White House of folks that would have helped us clarify our positions against radical Islam to, I think, probably the biggest news of the week is this uh, Pew poll that I think gives hope about reform that gives a better understanding of the Muslim population in America and what we face. And there's a lot of good news there, but there's also some concerning areas, and we'll talk about that data. So where do we start? First, I have to tell you this week there's just been an outpouring of emotion, of attention to just uh, the, the unbelievable humanitarian struggle in Texas, in Houston, in Corpus Christi, in Galveston, and all the towns that have been struck with just torrential flooding and rains, uh, 50 inches of rain with with uh, the fourth largest city in America dealing with mass um, destruction of property in their homes and and businesses uh, affected. Uh, the cleanup is going to take years, years, and we've been seeing it on news hour to hour. And uh, God bless our uh, uh, country, our people, and may God protect those who are trying to survive day to day, hour to hour, in this crisis in southern Texas. 
And, you know, I'm always reminded whenever we have crises of how our country is able to come together. We've heard a lot of that this week. And I have to tell you, as an American who has served in our military, I am never, it never ceases to amaze me what selflessness exists in our country and its citizens and what we will do for one another and what we will set down in order to make sure that we are safe and not only our families, our neighbors, our cities, but our pets, our loved ones. And you see the stories on the news and you realize that Unfortunately, sometimes it does take a tragedy to bring us together, but the challenges of Hurricane Harvey, I think, will make us stronger. The hashtag Houston Strong, I think, uh, rings rings strong, and it's good. Uh, as much as I, uh, we all hate seeing a tragedy, we're looking at us coming together after a natural tragedy, natural disaster rather than after a terror disaster. And we're reminded that that is one of the things that is America at its best. And, you know, sometimes it takes the virulence, the poison from often the left, as as we've saw it on the right, and we talked about this last week, uh, with Charlottesville and the fact that uh, there were so many missed opportunities by President Trump and others after the Charlottesville episode, if you will. But now this week, I have to tell you that uh, it saddened me. It saddened me to see some of the partisanship continue to rear its head as as we we saw debates about comparisons of how much is going to be provided in support after Hurricane Harvey versus Sandy in the Northeast. And there was one piece that stuck out by uh, Katie Waldman at the Slate, and it said, why it's misleading to say that Houston showcases America at its best. So her point in the piece is that it's misleading that we're living in some kind of fake utopia. She quotes a book by Rebecca Solnit that says, A paradise built in hell, the extraordinary communities that arise in disaster. And she said they create provisional utopias. That ultimately, she said, These findings put a frame around the cooperative society that has lately emerged in Houston. It is a beautiful anomaly a liquid note of silver momentarily liberated from its sheath of rust. How much can you hate our country? How much deep hate can there be for Americans, our system of government, our society, that during one of the biggest disasters people can ever recall, not only in our lifetime, but in the last century, that you talk about the stories of goodwill, the stories of health, the stories of, of selflessness as simply being what she describes as a bystander effect, that it is a fake utopia, not of the varsity, but actually junior varsity. That's what she says. And Slate, leftist anti-American outlet, 
publishes this garbage. And I have to tell you, the reason it's relevant to this program is for too long, I've been, I've been screaming from the rooftops about why is it that Islamists aren't called out for their hate of America? Why is it that folks that say that America's to blame for our foreign policy, to blame for bin Laden, to blame for ISIS, all these things that are ideologically driven due to radical Islamist theocracy and Sharia supremacism. No, the left wants to blame America. Hello? Even during natural disasters of the worst kind, they put out pieces on the front of their homepage by Katie Waldman that are not about finding those narratives that can help us build the unity of the ropes that bind us. You know, when I was in the Navy, the SEALs had a saying that we were like parts of a rope, nine together wrapped and interweaved, create a stronger rope than each one alone that would fray and break. And that is so true. And we learn that in the toughest of times in the military, you're constantly ready and training to go to war. So you learn that much more quickly in regular society. We're not in war every day, but when times are tough, you learn that. And I read this thinking to myself as a physician, Imagine a patient who you've known for years all of a sudden develops cancer. And you try to get out of them the strength, the deepest strength of positivity, that all will be better. They will they will harness the energies that they've not known in their life and that they will find a cure and that there is hope. No, instead of that, you tell them, well, you know, you've been weak in the past. You failed at this. The 30% don't survive. That is the most hor- That would be the most horrific bedside manner. And yet... This is what's coming out of Slate magazine. And it's not just this one writer. Too often, when we're confronted with conflict of security, of of ideological unity that we can find in harmony, rather than finding common ground, we look for the polarization possible because we want, too many want, to divide society. Too many want to sit down during the national anthem. Too many want to find racism and division. Too many want to exaggerate the voices of a bunch of tiki torches carrying fascists. Too many, like Antifa, want to create violence and breed more violence. And too many, like radical Islamists, want to fuel that and turn America and the West in on itself against its own nationalism, against its own identity, against its own freedom and liberty, making our societies less palatable palatable for Muslims so that they can then turn to the Islamic state mentality. So as we continue to help Houston, help, help Texas rebuild itself, I am going to continue to amplify the voices of those narratives, those hundreds and thousands and millions of stories of Americans that have given their extra. Why? At times it's because, yes, it's human nature. 
because they're Christian, because they're Jewish, because they're Muslim, because they're humane, because they love their neighbor, because they love their country. It's all part of who they are. And to deprive the narrative of that national identity, no different than depriving them of their humanity, is to try to rip us apart even in the middle of a storm, even in the middle of a tragedy. So here on Reform This, I will continue to speak out against the self-hating anti-American left and the self-hating anti-American Nazi militants who say they're on the far right, but who knows where they are. They're just not American. They're not conservative. They're not liberal. They are fascists. But these are not the 99% of Americans that love their country, that will seek to help their neighbors and to protect and preserve the greatest country and the greatest democracy on the planet, the United States of America. This is Zudi Jess. We'll be right back on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Reaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something. And progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at Glenn Beck. Com slash liars. Reaching the fault lines of today, this is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. This week, uh, I started talking about Houston and the tragedy and uh, our prayers, our thoughts, our every minute of the day with our suffering brothers and sisters in, in Texas and elsewhere from the storm. And we hope and pray that uh, there's uh, no more loss of life, no more illness, and that they rebuild as quickly as possible and that our country come together. Now, let's move on to, there's a uh, another story that uh, came out from Pew. And there's a lot of, you know, Pew is that... Uh, Nonprofit that does research and polling, etc. And some of their polls have been very helpful in looking at some of the data out there about Muslims, about terrorism, about radicalism and ideology. I think they've missed some of the questions that need to be asked in the past, and I think that's because they've had no reformers working with them, looking at the the more pertinent questions that need to be asked. And they asked a, a good. Still, they're they're on the surface of where they should be. They haven't gone in deep into what needs to be done to awaken the masses. Uh, But uh, this week, on uh, August 28th, they came out with a a poll that I think has some very good news. Very good news. Now, there's some worrisome news in there, too. And what I want to do is, over the next uh, segment or two, let's let's talk about some of that debt. And I think it's very... When people... One of the most common questions I get in this reform work is, you know, Zudi, how many people agree with you? How many people are like you? Are you a mutation in the Muslim consciousness or 
you know, my naysayers from both the, 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 the far left, the far right, the whatever, who feel that Islam is the problem, feel that either I'm lying or, or somehow I am a minor, small fraction of the reality. So the recent study, I think, may shed some light on this. It says, U.S. Muslims are religiously observant, but they are open to multiple interpretations of Islam from the Pew Research Center. And, you know, the, the conclusion they come to, I think, is right. They say, for American Muslims, being highly religious does not necessarily translate into an acceptance of traditional notions of Islam. And they show some of the data that while many U.S. Muslims say they attend mosque and pray regularly, sizable shares also say there is more than one way to interpret their religion and that traditional understandings of Islam need to be reinterpreted to address the issues of today. So what are those numbers? They said, for example, 65% said that religion is very important in their lives. And that's similar to Christians, who's around 68%, and higher than the share of U.S. Jews, according to Pew, in which they said it was 31%. And additional to that 65%, 22% of Muslims say that religion is somewhat important in their lives, while fewer say that religion is not too important to them at all. Now, to me, that's a, that's a positive number, because that's the people we want to tap into, are those who religion is important to who they are. Now, are they Islamists? Where's their identity? Is Where's their ideology? I don't know. They didn't really investigate that. But they did ask one important thing. And it said a majority, 64%, say that there is more than one true way to interpret the faith's teachings. And half as many, 31%, say there is only one true way to interpret Islam. Now, I, I believe now this a number that I've thrown around and I get from analysis of the influence of Islamist political parties in Egypt and Pakistan and analysis of the influence of Islamists in communities that I've worked in from Wisconsin to Virginia to Arizona. I will tell you, it said, again, this study said 31% of American Muslims say there's only one true way to interpret Islam. I think that is part and parcel of being an Islamist, a belief that there's one Islam, and as Erdogan of the AKP in Turkey says, there's no moderate Islam because there's only one Islam. That's what the Islamists say. Now, 31%, you activate that. Remember, you and I talked a few episodes ago about tipping points for influence in society being 10%. So when you have an emboldened 31% who believe there's only one version and they want to protect that one version, that's significant. So that 31%, I think that's a worrisome number to me that believe there's only one interpretation. Yes, the positive in this study is that 64% say there's more than one way to interpret Islam. But my problem is that my work has been proof to this, that 
while I've always truly believed in my gut and in my experience with the Arabic community, Syrian, Egyptian, Saudi, Persian, and the Iranian community, and the Pakistani, the Indo-Pakistani community that are Muslims, many support and believe in what our American Islamic Forum for Democracy does, that we believe there should be a separation of mosque and state, there should be no Sharia state, there should be an end to the Islamic state and its jihad, there should be an equality of men and women, there should be an end of apostasy and blasphemy laws, all of the ticks, the check marks of ideas that are still stuck in the 11th and 12th century, 7th century, whatever you want to apply to Islamic history. All of those ideas, the fact that they're open to multiple interpretations is good, but they're not doing much about it. This is the problem. 64% may acknowledge it, that there's more than one way to interpret it, but what is in that group of interpretations? Are they talking about the Salafi jihadi militant wave or this is the non-militant way? I mean, if you're saying the ISIS versus the Muslim Brotherhood way, uh, they're at loggerheads because the Brotherhood tries to co-opt political means, nonviolent means at times to achieve the same thing that ISIS wants to do, which is an Islamic state. So at times a nonviolent means can be even more dangerous because it has this illusion of modernity when in fact it's draconian theocracy. So what do they mean? I'm willing to look at the positive. I'm willing to look that this is a cup half full that Muslims saying multiple interpretations possible means that they're open to discussion, to critique, to analyses, reinterpretation. The Arabic term for the critical interpretation of Scripture in light of modern day reform. I hope that's what it means. It could mean that they just simply believe in that debate, for example, between the Salafis who say, oh, don't vote because you're participating in the infidel system versus the Islamists who say, no, vote, vote, form a party. Use the system to gain influence. So that's all practical disagreements that can get down. So at the end of the day, this data is is the 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 tip of the iceberg. It's simply the outside skin of the deeper issue of what do we mean by reinterpretation? Is what the Muslim reform movement talks about in its planks, platforms of reform, is that heresy that should be investigated and we should simply dance on the head of the pin of saying that, well, you know, yes, you should cut the hands of those who steal, but only that's how you prevent. You never really do it. You just threaten it. That's the Tariq Ramadan interpretations of Islam, which never really reform, but simply ameliorate Islamism versus destroying and defeating Islamism's underpinnings and foundations. So yes, 64% saying there's more than one true way to interpret the teachings is good. But the 31% that say there's only one true way is a large, sizable threat of monolithic interpretations that we need to unite that other 64% against and make sure that when they're talking about other ways to interpret Islam, it is a very diverse 
interpretation is not just sort of a debate about whether you look at the moon or calculate it. Yeah, that's good to have that debate to figure out when our holiday starts. But that can't be the most important debate. The most important debate, the most important debate is going to be about transforming our societies into ideologies compatible with secular liberal democracy, abandoning the old theocracy. So this Pew poll, I think, shows a silver lining. But at the end of the day, what does it mean for the ummah? Can we redefine ummah? They don't ask any of those tough questions at Pew. And I've always wondered why they've had this reluctance to ask the tough questions. When we come back this week, this weekend is the biggest holiday on the Islamic calendar. The Eid al-Adha, the holiday of the sacrifice that commemorates Hajj, the pilgrimage that Muslims do to Mecca to reenact exactly what the Prophet did upon going to Mecca. When I come back, we'll talk about the holiday and we'll continue talking about this pew poll and what it shows. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Radio Network On Demand. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It's always an honor to be with you and thank you. God bless you for sharing your time with me. I hope you hear a voice of reason, inspiration, and reflection. So much to talk about. One of the things, you know, the reason I didn't open this uh, about it this week is, you know, as an American, I think the number one thing we're all thinking about is prayers and thoughts for our fellow countrymen and women in, in Texas. But this week, we also have to, as Muslims, recognize that this is our greatest holiday of the year. On uh, Friday, on uh, September 2nd, was Eid al-Odha, the holiday of the sacrifice. It recognizes what we believe to be the 10th day of the 12th month of the lunar calendar and the Islamic calendar that we believe revisits what the Prophet did in Mecca and Medina and the first mosque at the time. And a lot of those rituals, Muslims come together for their holiday prayers, their their charity and others. And, you know, so many Muslims, and I think if you look at so many American Muslims this week are saying, you know, let's give our holiday charity to Houston, to Texas, to our suffering brothers and sisters in our country, in the country that we love, in the country that we belong to. And as our brothers and sisters uh, in Islam suffer in civil wars in Syria, suffer at the hands of theocrats in Iran, in terrorism and dictatorships from Egypt to Saudi Arabia to Pakistan, to elsewhere, we're reminded of the blessings, the blessings we have of living in this country, in the United States, and the blessings we have to live in an information society that allows us to, to learn, to read, to question authority, and how important it is for us to push back. You know, 
two to three million Muslims come together, came together this week in doing their pilgrimage to Mecca. Every year, this is the time and year in which they do that pilgrimage. At the time of the Prophet Muhammad, that used to be a time in which Muslims would come together to ask questions, to discuss, to learn. Now, yes, there's still a lot of prayer and spiritual atonement and and reflection. And, you know, if you take a look at the marvel of the pilgrimage, you'll see inside that mosque the circumambulation of every culture, every ethnicity comes together wearing just white sheets, many times cutting their hair, shaving their head to become closer to God, closer to as humble as possible in nature in front of God as they perform that pilgrimage. And men and women praying, walking next to each other in equality, no material wealth, the equality of different ethnicities, the equality of different races. So as I ended my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, I mentioned in my letter to my children, I said, when if you look inside that mosque as they, they perform their pilgrimage and circumambulate around the Kaaba, that black structure with the black stone inside it that we believe Abraham first placed, there is a sense of egalitarian nature that is much in line with the American spirit of freedom and equality. Outside that mosque is the most heinous, treacherous, theocratic, autocratic regime on the planet. And when that society can begin to look inside that mosque and see the equality that is learned as part of that tradition of pilgrimage every year on the 10th day of the 12th month in Eid al-Adha, on the holiday of the sacrifice, then we know we would have made progress. But until that time, we will not. And unfortunately, the Hajj has no components to it in which we share, in which we I think, viralize a lot of the information and critique that we could to push back against the establishment in our faith. And I think on this holiday, I I call upon my Muslim brothers and sisters to push back against your leadership, push back against the establishment in our community, push back against the old theocrats that give excuses as to why we can't question their interpretation of hadith, of the Quran, and of other what they feel and what we feel to be central parts of what it means to be a Muslim. Why can't we be good Muslims and say the Islamic State is dead and should be dead forever? And that ultimately we want to see the rise of secular liberal democracies and that our loyalty number one and forever is to our nation state that gives us the freedom to choose to accept or reject our faith. Why can't we do that? Why can't that be part of the discussion when Muslims come together, instead of simply being about the rituals of the Hajj? Those are questions I think that are important to ask. And I hope imams across the country are asking. But no, unfortunately, many of the reformers we saw, for example, a few weeks ago, an imam in Southern California that was crying and moaning about the Temple of Mount and how magnetometers were being used. And he said how he described the Jews in a, in a heinous, anti-Semitic way. 
and upon many Muslim reformers, uh, led by, I think, some of the work of Shireen Kudosi, who pointed out that this man needs to be fired by his mosque board. He's simply an imam. He's not the leader of that mosque. The board is. But they fell short of firing him. He apologized. He simply apologized. It's not enough. His apology was only because he got exposed. His apology was only because he was pressured by the release of his sermon globally by memory and others. He didn't mean it. Listen to the words of his apology, and he didn't mean he should have been fired. There should be a point in which imams like that become radioactive. So on this holiday of the sacrifice, what are we sacrificing? What are we leaving as our legacy as American Muslims? That Pew poll that talked about what other data is there, it said, well, 43% attend mosque weekly or more. Now I have to tell you, the previous data from 2006 or seven said somewhere between 20 to 25%. That's the numbers I had been living with. Now it's saying 43%. I'm not sure that those numbers have changed, but perhaps these are better analyses, uh, different uh, sample populations, who knows? But this is, I think, the bad news of this study. The bad news was not only that 31% that believes in only one interpretation of Islam, but I believe the bad news of this study is the 43% that attend the mosque weekly. 43%? Now, do they attend the same mosque? I don't know. In the Middle East, they don't. In the United States, I think it's more so the same mosque because of the 501c3 organizational memberships that exist, etc. But the fact that 43% attend weekly should tell you that they are anesthetized when the Islamist imams are preaching the hatred that you and I have talked about here and I've written about at the Boston mosques, at the at the uh, uh, Bridgeview Mosque in Illinois that we that the Chicago Tribune talked about uh, in 2004 as being one of the Brotherhood mosques. There are so many Islamist mosques that are part of the infrastructure of Islamist ideology. And if 43% of American Muslims are attending weekly, they are seriously like the silent Germans. And I'm sorry. Yes, they might just be sitting in the back going back to work and not being happy with the sermon, but I thought most of them actually weren't even going. Now, it's still a minority or a plurality that are going. It's not a majority. 32% attend monthly or yearly. 26% seldom or never. So the good news is 58% attend at most monthly yearly. I think that's the main constituency, the non-affiliated Muslims who would reject the establishment. But that 43% that are attending, that is an important number. That is a very important number because they're sitting every week listening to the domination of the Islamists from the pulpit that are apologizing for the Sharia schools of thought of Shafi'i, of Hanafi, of Hanbali, of Maliki, these schools of thought that teach that 
Islam has rights as an idea. Not Muslims. Yes, Muslims have rights, but no, they teach that Islamophobia is the term they use. They will preach about anti-Zionism, anti-Israel, anti-Westernism. They will teach about the hedonism of the West, the, the, the negativity about our foreign policy, etc. These are the radicalization steps that are coming from the mosque pulpits. And the minds they are poisoning includes 43% of the American Muslim population. That is a huge number. So I'm sorry. There's some good news in that poll, but there is some bad news. When 43% of the American public, Muslim public, is going to mosque weekly, that tells me that their sermons are being heard. It's not by 10%. Remember, you need 10% as a tipping point. So we're hoping we can get 10% mobilized with our reform movement. And yet, it's a lot more that are going and sitting in the back not the pews, but in the back on their rugs, listening, silently clapping and leaving. I've had my own exposure of imams that I've taken on, transcribed their sermons, publicized them and critiqued them. And I was called an Uncle Tom from the pulpit. And so many stayed silent. We talked about that many episodes ago. So, there's some good news in that Pew poll that there, most Muslims believe in more than one interpretation. What is that more than one? I hope it's beyond just violent versus nonviolent. But there's bad news. 40% plus are silent accomplices in the nonviolent Islamism that dominates our mosques. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This, and we'll be right back with our last segment. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. We're off for Labor Day Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday when we'll launch our new Blaze TV program and we'll discuss muskets and Applejack, guns and liquor, nothing like well, a... Not exactly. It's more like, you know, how the Civil War shaped spirits, how doctors use different alcohol to treat soldiers. Well, I'm sure that's good, stuff. too. Plus, we'll discuss a new movie, In Search of Liberty. How to teach youngins. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is just always a thrill to be with you talked about a lot this week. Uh, I'll let uh, some of those numbers marinate with you, and uh, we'll visit them again. It's going to be part of my work to uh, educate you and work myself on uh, being more educated and doing more research about what we can do about those numbers. And I think ultimately we need to do some deeper research into what are some of the realities of that ideological debate happening beyond simply one Islam, many Islams. Which parts of Sharia are they willing to abandon? Which parts are they willing to reform and redo and reinterpret? So I hope in the spirit of the the holiday this year, Muslims come back reinvigorated to question authority. And, you know, one of the things I mentioned is this week with the departure now, not only of Steve Bannon, but now of Sebastian Gorka, you look, Sebastian left a letter, a resignation letter upon his departure and said that he felt that no longer 
Could he do the work of making America great again from inside, but felt he'd be more effective from outside? And one of the points that he made, and I don't, I, I don't want to take the time to read directly from his letter. I'll let you do that. Find his letter and read it. Uh, Molly Hemingway uh, reposted much of it at the Federalist, and he basically said that the trigger for him was not only the departure of Steve Bannon, but the reality of the fact that when President Trump gave his speech on Afghanistan and repositioned himself that he was no longer going to continue the the mantra of simply vacating our troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan once he's defeated ISIS, but he realized that Afghanistan demonstrated a failure on many fronts. And he said we had to continue to push forth. But what what Sebastian, what Dr. Gorka was most upset about was the fact that Islamic militancy, radical Islam, was not mentioned in his speech on that Monday night a couple weeks ago. It was not mentioned. And that was one of the centerpieces, was calling a, a spade a spade, was, was articulating that we had a battle of ideologies going on and that Islam had to come to terms with modernity. And he said that that was a bridge too far and that he felt that there were other forces. And we've talked about here on the program that be it the McMaster forces, the uh, forces of General Mattis, uh, Kelly, Chief of Staff Kelly, whatever it might be, there are those who are pushing back same old, be it the Bush Republican establishment or the left establishment, the old what some are calling the Acela Corridor from New York to Washington, refuse to call out radical Islam by name. And it's not just the name issue. It's you can't treat a disease that you cannot diagnose. And Islamism, countering violent Islamism, just like now. Nobody's hearing about the investigation of these four IT techs that had busted and co-opted the infrastructure of the United States Congress and were stopped almost on their way into Pakistan at the airport. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Congressman Carson, others. Uh, the, the guy working for Congressman Carson was using a fake email in which he was transmitting a ton of different pieces of information, apparently on national security issues on behalf of the Congress. And this story is getting no play. And I've said repeatedly, ad nauseum, why don't we have security clearances that vet for ideologies of Islamism? Most members of Congress not only reject that idea, but they wouldn't even know where to start because nobody's having a conversation about the threat of Islamism. Now there's nobody left in the White House I can think of other than the president himself who has articulated the need to identify Islam ik ideologies, Islamism as the problem. And that's a theopolitical ideology. So I hope Sebastian is more effective outside the White House, but I hope we can continue to make more progress. We can continue to push forth on the need to shift because the countering violent extremism program has completely fallen apart, thank God. That was a disaster. You can't counter violent extremism. And the head of it, George Salim, as you and I spoke a few weeks ago now, has, surprise, surprise, been hired on as a 
vice president or some kind of lead uh, position at the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which, sadly, as much great work as they've done in counterterrorism and exposing radical sheikhs like Kordawi and others, has, with the leadership of Jonathan Greenblatt and others, become far more partisan and simply an arm of the Democratic Party than truly focused on defeating anti-Semitism. And I'm sorry, this is no, uh, uh, we have to be realistic here, is that when you hire on people that refuse to call it violent Islamism, that will testify to Congress in contradiction to what I was testifying, Salim appeared on a panel right before ours, and Senator Cruz and others asked him about identifying the ideology, and he said that that would not be productive. And I'm sorry, what's not productive is not identifying the ideology. What's not productive is not refocusing America into what we should be doing, which is a new Cold War against radical Islamism. Last this week, Qatar reopened full diplomatic relations with Iran. Full. It has now sent an ambassador there. They already have shared huge economic projects, including a natural gas project that includes tens of billions of dollars. One of the reasons Qatar is one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, if not the wealthiest per capita. And remember, Qatar was becoming more and more isolated because the Saudis and the West and America have been listing for them the grievances of why it needs to stop the support of Islamists. Stop the support of Islamists. That's so important. So instead, Qatar, unable to meet all those demands, it has slowed down, has shored up its ability to divide the Middle East and now is working with other grassroots Islamists, most notably those in power, which include the Khomeinis. So how do we divide up the Middle East? I thought I'd take this opportunity in the last few minutes just to educate you a little bit about how the Middle East is deep. Why is Qatar work? Qatar, a Sunni monarchy of Islamist sympathizing Al Thani family? Why are they? Why are they working other than the economic reasons with Iran? Well, that family has found itself, from an Islamic interpretation, to feel that grassroots viral Islamism of political parties of Islamic parties, like the Muslim Brotherhood, to be their interpretation of Islam, while the Saudis are more Salafi in their interpretation, Wahhabi, which is more fundamentalist, corporate-style, board of directors-style Islamism, than the Qatari viral, grassroots-style Islamism. So the Qataris are going to work with the Khomeinis, an Islamic populist movement, the Turks, who are also friends with the Khomeinis, a, a populist AKP, Islamist political party, the Muslim Brotherhood, other viral populist grassroots party. So Qatar, Turkey, Iran, the Muslim Brotherhood work together. And then the Saudis, the Salafis, the Egyptian dictatorship, Sunni corporate Islamists are going to be more working together. So that's how it's dividing. So ultimately, we're going to see these areas divide more. The United States has historically been entrenched more with the Sunni dictatorships, the Arabist Salafi types, 
versus the viral Islamists, and I think it'll be good to at least build more firewalls against the Islamists, but I hope in the long term we abandon, abandon all forms of Islamism, be it top-down or bottom-up. There's no way we can reform them if we facilitate their petro-Islamist buildings, from whether it's from Saudi or from Qatar. They're all evil. The lesser of the evils is probably the Saudis versus the Qataris and the brother Brotherhood, or the Khomeinists, but the bottom line is, is you cannot reform Islam as long as you cater to Salafi dictatorships like the Wahhabi sympathizers, the Wahhabi petro-Islamist globally of the Saudi royal family, or the Salafi sympathizer of Al-Azhar in Cairo, and other Islamist dictatorships. We'll have more opportunity to talk about that division in the Middle East, but I think it's important that you understand it because no reform work is ever going to be successful unless we begin to understand not only the ideas that need to change, but the power structures that are feeding the obstacles that prevent the reforms that we're trying to do. So week to week, we'll continue this this journey together. God bless the United States. God bless all those families and struggling for survival in Texas. This is your faithful Muslim correspondent, Zuri Jasser on Reform This, and I'll see you next week. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.